0: Perhaps they'll learn from their journey, as I did from mine, that fantasy and experience never quite match up. Sahara was filmed between February 2001 and February 2002. For various reasons it was impossible to shoot it as one continuous journey. Summer heat and all-year-round bureaucracy forced a number of breaks upon us. The diary days represent days at work, give or take the very rare day off, and not time spent travelling out to the desert. Day One, Gibraltar Only three hundred miles from the Sahara Desert, there is a place where brass bands play, warm beer is served, and a blue lamp marks the police station. This corner of a foreign land that seems forever England is a gnarled limestone rock, nearly four miles long and fourteen hundred feet high, tucked into Spain's lower regions like a troublesome prostate, dominating the dozen miles of ocean that separate Europe from Africa. For the Berber chief, Tariq ibn Ziyad, who first settled on the rock thirteen centuries ago, it held the promise of escape from the hostile Sahara and a stepping stone to the rich underbelly of Europe. It became known as Jebel al Tariq, Tariq's Mountain, which, eroded down to the single word Gibraltar, it has remained ever since. The Britishness of Gibraltar, which began with Admiral Rooke's invasion in seventeen o four, is well entrenched. Contemplating my map of North Africa outside Pickwick's Pub, I order a coffee. No messing with latte or macchiato here. Cup or mug, I'm asked in a thick Geordie accent. I choose cup cars are squeezed into pleasant shady squares beside me. Buildings are squeezed around the cars, an attractive colonial house with deep balconies and freshly painted wrought-iron railings on one side, the handsome Georgian façade of the Garrison Library on the other, and next to it the offices of the Gibraltar Chronicle, the veteran local newspaper which broke the news of Nelson's victory at Trafalgar. For me, a first-timer in Gibraltar, there have already been surprises. First of all, that there are buildings of quality which are not just selling duty-free booze or fish and chips, and secondly, that Gibraltar's Britishness is one layer of a deceptively international cake. The balconied, green-shuttered cottages that stretch up steep alleyways leading off Main Street were largely built by Portuguese and Genoese, and the Catholic cathedral was converted from a mosque by the Spanish. There are, I'm told, more working synagogues on Gibraltar than in the whole of Spain. Nevertheless, it is Britishness that holds this polyglot community together. Sitting on the terrace of the Rock Hotel, as the day fades, it's quite possible to believe that the sun will never set on this tenacious shred of empire. Sipping a cocktail, surrounded by comfortable, chintzy home counties decor, and the soft sound of daily telegraphs slipping from snoozing laps, I imagine the Rock of Gibraltar as an ocean liner, loosing its moorings and sailing slowly off. This, I must admit, is after a couple of quite generous whiskies of the sort I'm unlikely to find anywhere else on this trip. Later, I settle into bed and, with one long, last, loving glance at the Corby trouser-press, turn out the light. Day two. Across the Strait. The ferries that cross the Strait of Gibraltar leave from Algeciras, three miles from the frontier, on the Spanish side we board a solid, ponderous old vessel called City of Algecerus, which will take one and a half hours to cover the dozen nautical miles between here and Africa. As the new generation of lightweight ferries has clipped the crossing time to thirty-five minutes, I'm not surprised to hear that this is her final voyage. A vigorous westerly rips in as we reach the open sea, where the bottleneck entrance to the Mediterranean shrinks to a mere nine miles. This is dangerous water, a tide-race of accelerating currents, and a thousand ship movements a day. The bonus of this urgent west wind is a panorama of dramatic clarity, the fingers of Europe and Africa almost touching, and between them, dead centre, the sun merging slowly with the horizon. I feel for a moment a jubilant sense of freedom, of being beyond tribal loyalties, national boundaries. I feel positively Homeric. Then a particularly fierce gust picks me up and hurls me bodily into the bar. DAY THREE Tangier. The new day glows bright behind the curtains, and I can't ignore it. I swing myself out of bed, surprised by the cool touch of a marble floor, and throw open the curtains— "'but the smarter the hotel, the less easy it is these days to throw open the curtains, "'and by the time i found the right cord to pull and disentangle the net from the main drape, "'I'm seriously irritated and irreversibly awake. "'The view is less spectacular and much friendlier than I'd expected. "'It's a painter's view. "'Below me is a small verdant garden, dominated by the luxurious crown of a palm-tree, "'and a solitary Norfolk pine, standing with its branches out like a cake-stand.' Running roughly in line from west to east are a harbour wall with a ferry boat alongside, a distant beach already covered with tiny figures, and, rising gently behind the curving bay, the headland beyond which a pipeline dives beneath the strait, carrying 10,000 million cubic metres of Algerian natural gas into Europe every year. The town is compact. Narrow streets rise and fall around low hills. The buildings look more French than Spanish, with red roofs and white plastered walls, sooty and streaked by the rain, from which sprouts a canopy of television aerials and satellite dishes. The sharp clarity of the light is softened by the drowsy mix of early morning sounds—dogs barking, doves cooing, a fishing-boat engine springing to life. I'm excited. I know there's a way to go before we reach the Sahara, but I'm on the starting grid. The El Minza Hotel opens onto a busy street leading up from the port and the market. There are cars, but they're well outnumbered by human traffic. Berber women, tough, pugnacious and wide, plod up the hill as if wearing all the clothes they own at the same time. Their low centres of gravity allow them to carry virtually anything. The men, by contrast, don't carry, they push. Covered from head to foot in thick woollen burnouses the wind that's keeping the clouds away is brisk and chilly. They steer rubber-wheeled hand-carts, full of bits of this and that, up the centre of the road. Among the crowd are men in sharp suits, doing nothing but standing and looking around. The admirable Allen, our fixer, tells me they're probably policemen. At dinner last night, a local man went out of his way to deny that Morocco was a police state. Not at all, he insisted. It is a well-policed state. There's an Anglican church nearby, which was painted by Matisse, one of a number of artists from Delacroix to Francis Bacon, drawn to Tangier by the quality of light and the tolerant hedonistic atmosphere, which also attracted writers like Bowles and Joe Orton and William Burroughs. Putting thoughts of hedonism aside for an hour or two, I fish out my only tie and walk over there for Sunday service. My parents would have been proud of me. Walking to church in Sheffield was never like this. The entrance to St Andrew's, Tangier, is virtually obscured this morning by a Berber street market. Somewhere behind the piles of food, I locate two white gateposts which mark the way into the churchyard. Once inside, I feel like Alice in Wonderland. Down by the gateposts, squeezed into a corner of the wall, is a makeshift wooden construction that I take to be a kennel, but which, on closer examination, proves to contain a bearded old man. An attractive Arab woman pops in through the gate, squats down, and begins to dictate a letter to him. Leaving the boxed scribe behind, I walk up the shaded path. On either side of me is a thick, entangled, but artfully managed secret garden of cypress gum and false pepper trees, jacaranda and creepers and assorted thick bushes, in the recesses of which I can dimly make out graves and headstones.' On closer inspection, most of these bear the names of people from the Scottish Highlands—curiouser and curiouser. Then there is the church itself. It emerges from all this greenery, looking like something out of the Copswells, except that the tower from which the Blue Cross of St Andrew flies is decorated with Moorish tiles. I am warmly welcomed by a manic garrulous Moroccan, in white jellaba and black astrakhan hat, given to fits of giggling, lunging kisses and a curious staccato English, punctuated regularly by the phrase, Thank you very much. He introduces himself as Mustafa Chergui, the church caretaker. Thank you very much. For thirty-eight years. Thank you very much. In between pointing out such features as the coffered chancel ceiling, carved from cedar wood by master craftsmen from Fez, and the display of arum lilies, which he fetches every Sunday from the market, he has to rush away to help Mary Evans, one of the church wardens, prepare the hymn-books. Mustafa Churgy and Mary Evans are not really off the same menu. She is quintessentially English, pronounces lost, lost, and very much in the tradition of Tangier travellers is just back from Syria.